sincere followers of Jesus Christ love to talk about the grace of God. And when I use the word grace, I mean that in its simplest definition, the receiving of something that you just simply don't deserve. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive all types of things we just simply don't deserve. We receive a com- the complete forgiveness and pardon of our sin. We become adopted children of God, daughters and sons of God. We receive the righteousness which is imputed to us on behalf of Jesus Christ. Uh, we receive eternal life and we even begin to live this mind-blowing, abundant life that God has ultimately given us. And here's the crazy thing about all of that. Everything, all of that has simply been given to us, and we are undeserving of any of it. That's what I mean when I speak about grace. No wonder it's something that believers love to talk about. But as much as we love grace, and we do love grace, we must never forget about God's mercy. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, then Mercy is not getting what we rightfully deserve. We need to be thankful for grace, but we need to be equally thankful for God's, God's mercy. If, if, if a child disobeys his parents, and his parents choose for whatever reason not to discipline that child for what he's done wrong, then that's mercy. Now, if they put him in the car and they take him up to, 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 uh, to the, the burger place and they give him ice cream up there, a burger and ice cream, a double cheeseburger and ice cream, then that's grace on top of that. Now, of those two things, which do you think he's going to remember the most, the mercy or the grace? He's going to remember the milkshake, all right? He's going to remember the grace. He's going to remember the getting of what he did not deserve. But if he had never gotten that, if he had never received that grace, He would have forever been able to be grateful for the mercy that he was shown and the fact that he didn't receive what it was that he actually deserved. Now, this last week was Thanksgiving week, and congratulations, most of you survived, right? And uh, and it can be a little hectic, but one of the things we do during that time is we love to begin to think about all the things we're grateful for. And begin to pray and thank God for everything that we're thankful for. Maybe uh, around your table, your dinner table, you go around. It's very stressful, but everyone says, hey, we're going to go around the circle and we're going to say what it is that we're most thankful for to God. And the truth is, many of the things that we say are, are, are all the graces of God the things that we don't deserve. We're saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm grateful for my spouse, and I'm grateful for my children, and I'm grateful for my job, and I'm grateful for my church, and I'm grateful for my Pastor Mike, which I'm sure all of you did at Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, no doubt about that. And so, so these are things, though, these are, these are all the graces of God, though. These are all things we're thanking him for, uh, things that we don't deserve that he gives us anyway. I doubt very much that anybody stood up in the midst of Thanksgiving dinner and thanked God for his mercy. I doubt very much that anybody pulled away from the table, wiped their mouth off, and said, hey, man, I'm just, glad, I'm just happy to be here. Uh, I just got to tell you, I'm just happy that God hasn't struck me dead and that he hasn't condemned me uh, to hell for all eternal damnation. All right, thank you. Uh, sit down and back to the cranberries. I, I just don't think that happened. But let me say this. I think that it really should. I think it should. See, I think what is, what is happening, what, what, what we're going to see in this text is we're going to see God's mercy on full display. And we're going to see two acts of mercy that you and I need to be grateful for unto God. 
See, here's what I know that's going on. As a pastor, I know this. There are many people who are praying for certain things. They're wanting certain things from God. They're pleading, and all that is great. In fact, what they're doing is they're actually asking God to graciously work in their life and give them what they don't deserve. But here's the good news that I have for you. Even if you don't receive whatever it is that you're praying for or whatever it is that you don't feel like you have, uh, here's the good news. You may not receive everything that you don't deserve, but you can be rejoicing and thankful today when we live because you're not receiving what you do deserve. That's the mercy of God. So there are two things that we want to see at this morning, these two acts of mercy. First of all, we see God's merciful response to intercessory prayer. We see God's merciful response to intercessory prayer. Now, just as a reminder, you may not have been here in our study. Let me give you a little background, quick background of what's going on. Uh, God's people are being continually and perpetually and stubbornly disobedient to God. And God, out of his grace, has sent this prophet, Amos, to the people to warn them over and over again that what they're doing is wrong. And if they don't relent, God's going to ultimately judge them, but to no avail, to no success. They're, they're simply just living in their sin without repenting. And so now, in chapter 7, finally, God has says, enough. His patience has run out, and now his judgment is about to begin. And so what God does is he sends three visions to the prophet Amos to let him understand how this judgment, how he, in fact, is going to judge his people. And the very first vision that he gives is a vision of locusts coming and destroying the crops of the people. Look at verse 1, if you will. He says, this is what the Lord God showed me. He says, behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Now, the people in the northern kingdom would basically plant crops twice a year, and they would have two separate harvests. The first planting of the crops, and when they would harvest those crops, everything that they had, everything in those crops would go to the king. It was a form of taxation. Everything would go to the king. It would go to, for him to eat, for his family to eat, to be able to fund the government, if you will. It was all their taxes. And then the second harvest, the second crop that they would plant, and then to be able to bring in and harvest was all for them. It was for them to be able to store up, especially when, with the coming winter. It was to help them to be able to survive. And in this vision, what Amos is actually seeing is he sees uh, the, 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 the people that the first crop has already come in and, and it's been given to the king. And now the second crop has been planted right when it begins to just bud up. It's just beginning to sprout up. And God forms these locusts in a form of judgment and sends them and eats up all of their crops. So that this year there's not going to be any harvest at all. Now this would have meant complete annihilation and devastation to the people. And in hearing this, this is what Amos does. Verse 2, notice, he says, When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord, God, please forgive them. How could Jacob stand? He is so small. Now what I want you to notice, I want you to notice the act of mercy that Amos has here. Amos has not been treated well by this group of people. In fact, they've only given him a hard time ever since he's shown up. He's left his family, he's left his job to come and to mercifully, mercifully tell them what it is that they were doing wrong so that the judgment of God wouldn't come upon them, and they've only given him a hard time. They've given him the nickname of Amos, which is ultimately burden bearer. They've mocked him. They've threatened him. They've rejected him. And yet still in all of this, 
He's now interceding on their behalf to God for God not to give them what it is that they are deserving of. And he not only does it once, but he actually does it twice. Look at the second vision just for a moment in verse 4. The second vision comes and it says this. This is is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment of fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Again, here's another judgment of God, devastating as it is, of fire. Now, we don't know exactly what this fire is. Some have suggested that it may have been a supernatural act of God as God had, had, had judged Sodom and Gomorrah by sending fire down from heaven. That might have been what he was describing here. Others have suggested that it was maybe something different, more of a natural sense of natural wildfires that had just gotten out of control and was consuming everything that they ultimately touched. So others believe that this was probably more symbolic, that this fire that he's speaking of is not actually of an actual fire, but instead it was in reference to the Assyrian army that we know that God would ultimately send and to be able to devastate the people. But the key here is, God says, this is how I'm now going to destroy them in his second vision. And what does Amos do? He cries out and intercedes mercifully for them in verse 5. And he says, then I, O Lord God, please cease. How, he says, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. What an amazing example of what it means to not get what we deserve. Looking at Amos, putting myself in his shoes, it's easy for us. None of us would have blamed him if after him warning over and over again that he would have washed his hands, brushed the dust off his feet, gone his way, and said, hey, good luck with that. I tried to tell you, tried to tell you what was ultimately coming, but now I'm on my way. I don't think any of us would have blamed Amos for doing such a thing, but he doesn't do it. And the question is why? Simply this, I believe by Amos' response and plea to God that he understood clearly what was at stake. When he pleads with God and he's calling out to him and he's saying, please cease, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. He understood that if God's judgment came, this was not going to be some simple disciplinary smack on the hand. This was going to be devastation that the very wrath of God was going to pour out on these people. And so what does he do? Knowing what's at stake, instead of focusing on his own personal hurt, he intercedes for the people and cries out for mercy towards the people of God. You know, when I was a youth pastor, some of you don't know I was a youth pastor, how I became so cool as a pastor. And um, I was a youth pastor. One of the things I loved like crazy as being a youth pastor was actually getting to do all the fun things that the youth got to do for free, right? And uh, so I would pick trips to go, yeah, that's a great trip. <laughs> I'm going to go for free. And so uh, I, I love doing these things. And, um, and one of the things I love to do is go and paintballing. I don't know if you've ever done this, but this is kind of a, a, a kind of a violent game, to be honest. I don't know if you've ever been shot with a paintball before, but it's not pleasant. Uh, it hurts quite a bit. A, a, a ball shooting at you at three, four hundred feet per second uh, can can be pretty terrifying. Uh, so I brought my youth group there uh, to do it and experience it. And I remember one time I had a large group of kids and. And I was trying to show the kids, some of them were new, trying to show them, had to put their gear on, their face masks on, get their guns ready to shoot. And, and all of a sudden, as I'm giving some instructions, I feel this piercing shot in the back. Ugh, uh, and I turn around, and it's that kid. And, uh, and what I mean by that kid is the kid that always annoys the youth pastor. If 
There's something that he's not supposed to do. He's going to do it. Uh, he's, he does everything unexpectedly, which makes it expected, I guess. And, and he's laughing, and he's five yards away from me, shoots me square in the back with this thing. And, I mean, it is, it's bad. And, uh, and I turned to him, and he's like, I just wanted to see if it worked. And, uh, and so, so I, was, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day because I did not snuff his life out at that particular point. But I was doing everything I could not to. And I was sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I want to kill this kid. Uh, um, what am I going to do? I can't. I know his parents. They're going to be very angry and, uh, if, this, if his son doesn't come back home. And so somebody came up, and God made a way. And, uh, and somebody came up and said, hey, I got an idea how you can get back at him. He's on my team. And he goes, you know this section over here of the course? He goes, yeah. He goes, you can hide in the bushes there. I'll lead him down that path. And when I lead him down that path, you ambush him. And I was like, I was like, brother, that's just not right. Oh, but let's do it anyway. So <laughs> I went back and I, 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 everybody else got in their place. And so I sat back and I was waiting and I went down that path and I got behind a bush and I start looking around. There's like 30 people hiding in these bushes. And I'm like, what are you doing here? We're going to ambush that guy that shot you is what they said. <laughs> and all of a sudden, now in my mind, honestly, I'm thinking, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He shot me. I'm going to shoot him in the thigh, and then we're going to be okay, and he's just going to go off. But this was not looking good, right? This was total annihilation and destruction if this kid comes down. And right then, he begins to come up. I stand up and go, wait, cease fire. Don't shoot. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we had a couple trigger-happy middle schoolers that just unleashed on the, uh, on the poor kid. And I'm standing over him going, don't, 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 don't. Now, why is that? Well, I wanted him to get what was his due, if you will, a little taste of his own medicine. But I didn't want the poor kid to be destroyed by paintballs, right? Well, Amos is doing something very, very similar here. Does he have a bruised ego? Does his feelings hurt? Has he been put out? Has he been rejected? Has he been threatened? He's been all of these things, yes. But when he looks at what he's suffering, it's nothing compared to what those who are instilling that suffering on him are ultimately going to face. And it causes mercy to flow within him and to intercede for the very people who have wronged him. And so he calls out to God and he begins to cry. It's, 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 it's one of those things where he says, hey, God, I understand very much what is at stake. I can't walk away and just allow your wrath to come because I understand what it means for that wrath to come. It's important for you and I to understand and constantly live with attention and the reminder of what is at stake. Look, we're in all kinds of different relationships, some of them very good, some of them okay, some of them bad, and some of them very, very bad. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you've had people in your lives who have continually sinned against you, continually hurt you over and over again. And it's so easy for us sometimes just go, you know what, enough's enough, wash my hands, dust off the feet, I'm going, I'm moving on. I hope that they ultimately, sometimes it's our natural inclination, fleshly inclination to sit back and say, you know what, I either think or I'm even going to pray that they get what it is that they actually deserve. But when we begin to understand what's at stake, what needs to ultimately happen at that moment is we need to understand that this demonstration of this sin against us is bad news. This perpetual sin at best demonstrates that that person is at least not in fellowship with God 
and that God indeed is going to discipline them because of their continual disobedience. That's at best, and how many of you know the discipline of God can be very severe? But at worst, that sin that's being committed over and over, whether by a co-worker, or whether by a spouse, or whether by a child, or whether, whether by a son or a daughter, whoever it is, it could very well be, and most likely, like the case of most of those in the time of Amos, was a demonstration that they weren't in the faith at all, and the wrath of God was storing up for them on the day of judgment. And so what happens there is you and I are able to overcome our temporal distress and our difficulty with an understanding of what is eternally at stake for the person who is sinning. And the way to demonstrate that grace is to what? Is to go to God and intervene and to pray and intercede that God himself would have mercy on that individual. Mercy is finally coming to the point that all those tears that you're shedding because of the hurt of somebody else stops being for you and begins to become for the person who's hurting you because you understand as bad as you have it, they are in much worse condition than you or I. And it's when we understand this, what is at stake, it's when we then can, can pray and do what God has commanded us to do. In Matthew chapter 5, 44, he tells us, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The only way to pray for those that persecute you and love your enemies is to understand as, as much harm as they're, they're, they're giving you, much worse condition. That's when that mercy comes out. And the way that we demonstrate that mercy is through that intercessory prayer, never giving up, never stop praying, no matter how hard it is, no matter how harsh they are, no matter how sinful they are. That's mercy. Now, here's what I want to make sure you understand. I don't want this to be a simple moralistic message where we all sit there and go, okay, well, the point of today was to be more merciful like Amos. We just need to be like Amos because he's a merciful guy. The focus is not on Amos. The focus is on God himself because Amos demonstrated mercy and he had a heart of mercy only because he served a God of mercy. This wasn't the greatest act of mercy, him praying and interceding for the people. The greatest act of mercy was the guy that God relented from his judgment on the people and didn't give them what it was that they deserved. We see it said twice. It says, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. The greatest act of mercy was not a sinful person extending mercy to another sinful person. It's a holy God extending mercy to the very ones who have sinned against him. That's the greatest act of mercy here. And you say, how can we do it? Well, one is we recognize in the midst of these relationships and the sin and the sin that people are committing against us, that first we recognize what is at stake, but the behavior may very well demonstrate that they are doomed to the judgment of God. So we extend mercy to them to try to hope to see them be able to come back and God give them more time to be able to ultimately repent, whether it be a child, whether it be a husband, whether it be a friend, whoever it is. But the second way we're able to do it is not only because we consider what is at stake, but it's also because this is the most Christ-like thing to do. We extend mercy because we have received mercy. We intercede for other people because we have a high priest who constantly intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? And other translations say, No one. And it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what we do as believers is because we have received mercy, it's the key for you and I becoming merciful. Look, 
We are called to give more than mercy to one another. We're to live in grace with our spouse and our friends and our families and everybody else. Amen? That means giving them more than what they ultimately deserve each and every day because that's the kind of relationship that we're in. But can you imagine if we would just get the mercy part right? Forget about giving them what they don't deserve. What if you and I would just take this to heart and begin not to give people instantaneously what it is that they deserve? That in and of itself would be an incredible witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So here's what we see. The first act of mercy that we see is that God's merciful response to intercessory prayer. Second, we see God's merciful clarity of his righteous standard, of his righteous standard. Now, in verse 7, we're going to see this third vision. And this third vision is different than the first and the second. The first and the second basically demonstrates what God said he would do in judging the people. The third vision is different in that he says, this is how I will determine whether I judge people or not. That's the distinction. Now look at verse 7. He says there, this one deals, first one dealt with locusts, second one dealt with fire, this one's going to deal with a plumb line. Verse 7 reads, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, and he goes, in a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, I will never again pass by them. So here's, here's what's going on. In this vision, he sees God holding a plumb line. Now, a plumb line is basically a simple instrument used by builders. It's a string with a plummet or a, 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 a rock or stone or some type of weight at the bottom of that particular line. Now, here's how this works. When you hold it out from you and the line is extended and the weight is down, it finds what is truly uh, a truly vertical, okay? And so what it does, it makes sure that things are right up in line. So you could take it, hold it up against a wall, and it will, you could determine whether it's plumbed or not. You could tell whether it's straight or whether it's leaning to the left or whether it's leaning to the right. It's an instrument to tell if something's ultimately straight. In this vision, he sees God next to a wall holding a plumb line. And this wall is the nation of Israel. And when God first created the nation of Israel, he formed it out of his grace, his mercy, and based on his what? His law. So he knew that it was straight. He knew that it was right. But because the people's perpetual sin over and over and over again, that wall that he created is now crooked. So what God is in essence saying is, he goes, I am going to be the judge of whether you are sinful or not. Now here's the key. At first, this would have seemed like really good news compared to the first two visions that God gave. And the first two visions, the people are listening to this, and they're like, you mean you're going to wipe us all out? Every single one of us, you're just going to wipe us all out? And God relents, God relents, first time, second time. This third one sounds much better, because what he's in essence saying is, he says, hey, listen, God, we're sinful, but we're not as sinful as the rest of those people. Now, what was their problem? A couple things. Number one is they had a hard time seeing their own sin. Remember, again, the prophet comes on the scene, is letting them know, I'm here to let you know that you are in sin and that you are incurring the wrath of God on you, but they just didn't believe it. Why didn't they believe it, church? They didn't believe it because everything was going so swimmingly. Everything was going so nice. They were so incredibly blessed. They had more money than they knew what to do with. They had vacation uh, homes in remote places. They were living on beds made of ivory. 
Uh, so, so financially, they were doing great. But there was a peace, a national peace that they were enjoying within their country. And remember how the Jewish mind believed, much like people do today, if everything is going swimmingly, then God must be happy with us. If things are not going well, then God must be upset with us. Now, here's the key. Listen carefully. That is ultimately true. That God will ultimately bless those who are righteous, who are in him. And God will ultimately bless those who are not righteous in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that is ultimately true. But in the process, God blesses both believers and unbelievers. Why? Because he wants his goodness to lead us to repentance. And so God was being good to them, to lead them to repentance, to show his mercy to them, to lead them and to repent from their sin. But they weren't doing it because they thought, hey, we must be doing okay. God is blessing us. So they continue in their sin. Now you have a guy coming and telling them that they're sinning and they need to repent. And now they're upset by it. So they love this vision because here's what it says. God's saying, okay, guys, forget about what Amos said. Amos isn't going to be your judge. And guess what? I'm not going to allow you to be your judge. He goes, I'm the one who's going to enact justice here. I'm the one who's going to determine whether you're right or whether you're wrong, whether you're straight or whether you're crooked. And they would have been excited because they understood, or at least they thought they were bad, but they weren't as bad as other people. They made a huge mistake. It's a mistake that all of us make, and that is we determine our righteousness and our goodness based on human standards and not God's standard, right? It, look, when we're by ourselves and when we're left alone, we think pretty good of ourselves, pretty highly of ourselves when nobody else is around. When we are introduced into society around other people, it's when we begin to understand, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. There are other people more righteous than me. But here's what we love to be able to do. Even though you can find some that are more righteous, you and I have an uncanny ability to find people much less righteous than us. It's easy for us to look around and to say things like, hey, listen, I'm not the best. I'm not as good as I should be, but at the same time, I'm not as bad as I should be. It's kind of, you, if you've ever shared the gospel, here's kind of how that sounds. Somebody says, hey, look, man, I know you said that I'm a sinner, and you're right. I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Adolf Hitler either, right? And by saying that, here's what they're saying. Because I'm not the worst of the worst, I'm somehow less deserving of the wrath of God. I'm just not deserving of it. Let me kind of explain for a moment kind of how this goes. I think, I, I think yeah, I think the way that this works is, let, let me take you back for a moment uh, to high school. Uh, I was in pre-calculus. That's right, pre-calculus because I could never do calculus. And so, uh, and I shouldn't have been in the pre-calculus. And I don't know how much you know about calculus, but it does a whole lot of graphing. All right, a whole lot of graphing is done. And we had this man by the name of Dr. Z. All right, and Dr. Z was one of our or, or really well-known uh, teachers in our school. I went to a private school, and, and he was best known for being on the team that invented, uh, um, invented uh, Burger King's method of grilling their burgers. How cool is that, right? And he's teaching my pre-calc class. And so uh, I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and one of the amazing things he would do is he would come in, and he would draw these lines, Okay, so he would draw a graph, the vertical and the horizontal lines, intersection, y, x, y axis, that type of thing. And he would just draw it like this. And when he would draw it, it would be these perfect lines. And we were all so enamored with him, we'd be like, oh, whoa, hey, did you see that line? That was incredible. 
And so what all of us would do is, I don't know why we did this, okay? I, I have no idea. But we would start seeing if we could draw as close to straight lines as he could. And we'd begin to draw it, and we'd draw it out, and we'd show it to the guy next to us. Now, we should be learning about pure calculus, and this is probably why I didn't do well in the class, because I'm drawing lines. And so after the class, we would all compare who drew the greatest XY axis by hand, and we would show it to one another. And here's what we would ultimately do. They were like, man, that's nothing like Mr. Z. And I go, but mine's better than yours. What do you mean yours is better than mine? Yeah, mine's better than yours. And they're like, but don't worry about it. Mine's better than yours. Yours isn't as good as mine, but yours is better than Steve's over there. Oh, it's better than Steve's? Oh, okay. And here's what's weird. We go down the line. Whose was best? What order was ultimately best? And it seemed like people were always offended at first whenever you tell them that theirs didn't meet the standard. That, that They would always kind of, what do you mean mine's not as good? But as long as you told them that there was somebody whose, whose graph was worse than theirs, all of a sudden they seemed to be okay with it. Well, that's okay. I may be one of the worst, but I'm not the worst. So I'm okay then. And again, this is exactly what happens with us. You and I use the wrong standard in determining righteousness. You and I, again, when we're alone, we think that we're really righteous. When we're around other people, we begin to recognize that there's some are better, but some are much worse. The problem with all of this is this is not God's standard. God's standard for the people was the law. God's standard of the people of what they were supposed to live by and how they could determine whether they were righteous or not was based on how they would fulfill and how they would live up to the law that they had commanded God. And the problem was they just simply weren't doing a good enough job with it. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what, is, what it means to covet the, uh, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what did God use to reveal the sinfulness of the people? His law, his word. What does God use for us? His law and his word, but he uses it to its fullest extent, the person of Jesus Christ. You remember in John, just track with me, you theological minds. And John, what does he say? He says, in the beginning was the and the word was, word was with God, word God. Who's the word? Jesus. Why does he use the word logos, word? What do words do? They reveal something. They reveal something. God's word reveals. This word reveals who he is, what it is that it requires, how he requires us to be born again. Would you agree? He sends Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ do? He reveals who God is and what he is ultimately about in its perfect sense. This is what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, though whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Here's what God does for us. He says, you think you're righteous? You think you're deserving of God's blessings? You think you're deserving of going to heaven? You think you're deserving of his forgiveness? You think you're for deserving of all of these things? Here's your standard. And he holds up Jesus, the plumb line. How do you compare to this? He says. How do you compare to a man that was born without sin, lived perfectly, fulfilled every command of God, and never once failed. How, you, how do you compare to this, he says? And the answer to that for each and every one of us who have any ability to be honest, and we struggle with being honest, would be like, I don't compare very well. The truth of the matter is, I've sinned today in my thoughts and my actions and my speech. 
In fact, there's probably an hour that goes by that I don't fail in some way, shape, or form. There are sins that I have in my life that I'm not even ultimately aware of, and that is not even talking about all the stuff that I am aware of that I need to be able to be fixed in my life. And yet people are still, they're still sitting there going, hey, I'm righteous enough because I'm better than this person, or I'm better than that person. God says for you to look at the person of Jesus Christ. He gives us the model of Jesus Christ to reveal to you and to me just how fallen we are. Now, now, why does he do it? That, that's, that's the question. That's the point. Why is he, why is he doing this? Be, because you and I are skeptical of the people that point out all their faults, are we not? Because we know how people are. Now, let, let's make sure we understand this. We are, as believers in Jesus Christ, in a faith body, supposed to approach each other in love and to be able to point out sins, to be able to lead out sin. Would you agree? We're to, in, 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 in the, I don't know if you're agreeing with me, so let me go ahead and make sure we understand this. We are commanded by the word of God to make sure that we confront each other about sin in our lives that we are not aware of or that we are continuing in as an act of love of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we have to do it the right way. We have to consider ourselves to make sure we're not in the same sin. Galatians talks about that. We understand that we're to take out the, the log in our own eye before we try to, try to take the speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye. Y'all with me? Does this sound familiar? And this is supposed to be done. And, 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 and it can be done by the grace of God. But with all of that said, you and I both know that many of the times when people come to us, and they begin to tell us what is wrong, it's not for our good, even though they claim it is. Hey, brother, I'm just coming to you because I see some sin in your life, and I'm doing this out of love, and this is for your own good. When really selfishly, sometimes in their own heart, they're not doing it for the good of another. What are they doing? They're doing it because they want to push you down because it helps them feel better for themselves. That is not the heart of God. God doesn't need to feel better about himself. When God shows us Christ and he reveals our sinfulness, either in the word of God, the reading of it, the preaching of it, or through the, through the demonstration of the person of Jesus Christ. He is bringing us and showing us and allowing that to reveal our own sin as a beautiful, wondrous act of mercy. As an act of mercy. So that you and I would see the need of Jesus Christ. See, many of us, we all look around, and the truth is that oftentimes that that, that God is reminding us of our fallen state through the person of Jesus Christ. It's all an act of mercy to show us our condition. But at the same time, the same one that shows our sin also demonstrates our absolute need of him. And the one who exposes our sin is the one who ultimately cures our sin. When we see Christ, we realize how sinful we are. But the one who condemns us is the, also the one who forgives us of our sin, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the act of mercy. There's mercy by exposing the sin, and there's the grace by dying in your place to become sin for you so that you and I may become his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to come and to be able to preach your word. God, again, I know that today, right here, there are people that are sitting there going, not everything is going right. I don't have everything that I want. I'm not getting everything that I know that I don't deserve. But the truth of the matter is, is we can rejoice because we don't receive what we know that we deserve. God, we don't deserve at all anything that you've done for us. But the fact that you have taken away the wrath of God from us is enough to be joyful about, is enough to be thankful for. But God, there might be some here who 
don't have that thanksgiving because there's just never been that time that they've called out for your mercy and grace. Listen, if you're one who calls for justice, if you're one of those that sits there and says, hey, I don't want to be judged by other people, or you think that you're a righteous person, those are not the standards by which you will be judged. You will be judged by the perfect judgment of God, his word, and the person of Jesus Christ. And you will not be saved by gripping on and calling for justice. You will only be saved by calling out today for God's mercy. Call out to him, repent of your sin, and say, God, forgive me, dear Jesus, and have mercy on you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Help us to respond according to what we've heard. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.